Before we get to the sermon time, I want to give a brief encouragement and exhortation. That's on. One of the one of the challenges of being a small church is that if a few people are sick or out of town, we feel like we have a small gathering, and we do have a small gathering. But that can also be a great benefit. Uh, you know who's missing, and so let this be a, an exhortation to you to use that as an opportunity to instigate you to check in on those brothers and sisters who we notice aren't here. Uh, not as a, a, a shaming or a guilt, but as a, I care for you and we love you and we, we missed you and we want to see how we can serve you. So you can take a mental note in a church our size of who's not here to be able to check on your brothers and sisters that they might be encouraged just by the fact that they're remembered, right? Doesn't, isn't it an encouraging thing when you are remembered by your brothers and sisters in Christ? With that, let's pray uh, that the Lord would bless this reading and preaching of his word. God, we come to this time expectant that you will work through your word, not because of my eloquence or because of my abilities, but because of the power of your word. Because of your power working through its reading and preaching and through your Holy Spirit, to penetrate our hearts, to challenge us and convict us of sin, to mend us back by the gospel, and to empower us to live for your glory. Fill us with joy at all your promises for us, we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. In the 2002 movie Minority Report, we get a glimpse of advertising in the future. Maybe you remember this scene if you've seen the movie. The protagonist, John Anderton, is walking through what appears to be a mall or a walkway, and advertisements are calling out to him. Digital advertisements on screens are calling out to him. They know what, what his preferences are, what his likes are, what his wants are, because they can identify him by his eyes. Creepy stuff, right? And so they call out to him, Lexus, the road you're on, John Anderton, is the road less traveled. Or he's walking through and he hears what sounds like the voice of a friend, John Anderton, what you need is a Guinness. Or this calm, soothing voice which says, John Anderton, get away from it all. You need a break. Like the siren songs in Greek mythology, these are invitations are coming to him, calling to him, come, here's what you need, here's what you want, here's what you desire, here's what will fulfill you. And in a very real sense, we face this ourselves, not in exactly the, the same creepy way, but in similar creepy ways. The Internet knows what you want. It knows what you desire from your Google searches, from your searches on Amazon, from the different websites that you visit. And it caters the advertisements to you, and they are calling out to you. They're inviting you to come and receive and get what you need. But even if we didn't have these invitations from the outside, we know that we have 
invitations that are springing up from within us. Our own desires are telling us we need certain things, that we desire certain things, that if we could really have this or that, then our heart would have what it desires. Even if we got rid of all the outward advertisements, we would still have these yearnings, these desires, these invitations to come and get what you need. And in the midst of all of this hustle and bustle and all the noise, there is one who actually knows what you need. He knows what you need and he stands and calls to you, come to me and have your fill and then I will fill you. The theme for our message this morning of this text is Jesus' gracious invitation to you. In this passage, Jesus invites you to come to Him and to drink. To come to Him and drink and to be filled with joy and life and love and even in in an amazingly mysterious way to be filled with Himself. God inside of you. The way I'll lay out the sermon is just in two parts, very simple. Jesus' invitation in verses 37 to 39, and then the response of the people in verses 40 to 52. You remember the context of where we are in John. This is in the middle of the Feast of Booths, a time when Jews from all over the place would come to Jerusalem and celebrate God's amazing work in rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, and especially as they were wandering through the wilderness. So they would set up booths, they would set up tents, small mini tabernacles to celebrate God's provision for them through the wilderness and God's continued salvation to them, His, his goodness, his faithfulness to them in all of this. And throughout chapters 6, 7, and 8, throughout these scenes in, uh, of the Feast of Booths, there is this growing conflict. There is this growing intensification in the conflict between Jesus and the Jews. You've heard us speak about this over the last several, several weeks. And what John is doing in these chapters is he, he is demonstrating in a very real way what we saw in the prologue. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to his own, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders in particular, and they rejected him to the point where they wanted to kill him. We also see the context that this comes on the last day of the feast. He calls it the great day. We saw the introduction of the Feast of Booths when he came up. We saw him standing up, the second scene, in the middle of the feast, and proclaiming himself. And now at the end, in the third scene, we see Jesus standing up at the last day, the great day of the feast. It seems that this would have been a sort of climax of the feast. You have the Jews who have come from all over, celebrating God's glorious works of his people in the wilderness. And now it has all culminated in this last day, this great day, sort of a climax of the feast. The next day, everybody would be going home. And in the midst of this, Jesus stands up and cries out. 
This is not one who stands up in the middle of a crowd and says, excuse me, may I have your attention? Could you listen? I I want to say something. No, he stands and cries out. He makes a disturbance in the midst of this climactic great day of the feast, and he calls out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out, anyone who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice, again, that Jesus is speaking in a metaphorical way, as he has been throughout, particularly the Feast of Booths, but throughout the Gospel of John. If anyone thirsts, come to me, let him come to me and drink. Notice also there's a condition to Jesus' invitation. He says, if anyone thirsts. The first condition for coming to Jesus and drinking is having thirst, having a, a real desire spiritually to be filled. This is not a category that we don't have. Even uh, today, there's the, the, some of the common lingo is, be, are you th- this person is thirsty. And it sometimes refers to social media when somebody keeps posting selfies of themselves. They're thirsty for attention. They want recognition for who they are. They want compliments. They want likes, as many likes as they can get. They're thirsty. See, they have this inward desire for attention. Well, that's one aspect of of having thirst, of having that desire. But we can see how that would manifest itself in other ways. We have thirst for things. We have thirst for power. We have thirst for possessions. We have this desire. And this is a condition of coming to Jesus. Having a a thirst, a desire, and I would probably say a spiritual hunger and thirst to be fulfilled. And that is a condition coming to Jesus. It's a general call to everyone, but it's a call to recognize that something is lacking in you, that you need something beyond what you have. The condition is thirst, but then there are two commands which follow. These are verbs in the imperative, third person imperative. So we often think of imperative as you come to me, but he puts it in the third person. Let him, let this one come to me. And the second command, let him drink as we said he's speaking metaphorically and we've already seen how coming to jesus is a parallel statement with believing in jesus and we could take to drink as parallel and similar in meaning to eating of jesus and so we have these ideas of coming to him in faith and also a faith which is a delight in him and enjoying Him, a being fulfilled. When you're thirsty, when you are parched and your, your mouth, your, your gums are clinging together and you're exhausted, what is it like to take a drink of water, something refreshing that fills you? Ah, it is satisfaction, it is joy, it is being fulfilled in what you have received. And in the same way, He's calling, come to me and drink. What should have been echoing in the minds of the Jews at that time, what should be echoing in our own minds, 
comes from Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? What an amazing question, brothers and sisters. Listen diligent to me, diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. What's amazing about that parallel is that Jesus here is putting on his lips the words of Yahweh himself. He is Yahweh in human flesh. The Jews should have taken note of that and recognized the amazing nature of his claims. Come to me, God in human flesh, and drink and be satisfied. The surface meaning or the first layer of meaning I take to be this. Jesus' invitation is an invitation to come to him in faith being satisfied with everything that he is for you. Every thirst that you have, every desire that you have was meant to find its fulfillment in Christ. Not in, in these other things that we pursue. And yet, there is a deeper layer of meaning here in Jesus' invitation. And we know that because John tells us. He tells us how we should further interpret this invitation of Jesus in verse 39. Did you see that? Now this he said about the Spirit. Now this is inspired commentary on Jesus' words. We should always pay attention when we get that because usually we have to depend on the books of man which are uninspired. This is the inspired commentary on Jesus' words. He said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, or as the Spirit was not yet, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, John is wanting us to make the connection between Jesus' words and this invitation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We should see this, the other layer. We should see the layer of coming to him in faith and delighting in him, but we should also see the layer of the gift of the Holy Spirit in connection with Jesus' words. Out of his heart, the one who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, what should we think about then in concerning Jesus' words, connecting them with the Holy Spirit? Of course, we should think of Ezekiel 36. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We should think of Isaiah 44, 3-4. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like widows, wi willows by flowing streams. And perhaps most pertinent to our passage is 
Another passage found in Nehemiah chapter 9. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. You should see the connections. You should see the significance of this passage. Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. In this passage, the people confess their sin as the law is being read to them, as the works of God are being recounted to the people of God, how He saved them, how He sustained them, how He cared for them, and the response of God's people. The Scripture says, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven. Does that sound familiar to the chapters we've been looking at? For their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. What happened as a result of that? But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of, uh, up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. And did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. But look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets. All of God's great graciousness. And yet they still rebelled against him. Many of you are probably familiar with the superhero comics. A lot of the movies that are coming out lately. One of them being Spider-Man movies. And what was Spider-Man before he was Spider-Man? He was just kind of a weakling little teenager, Peter Parker. Well, imagine he had had a trainer to teach him. Here's how you climb walls. Here's how you shoot webs out of your hands. Here's how you, you leap. Here's how you use your strength to stop a train. It doesn't matter how much training he got. It doesn't matter how much teaching he got from someone else. He would never be able to do those things. And yet, when in the, the fictional stories... He's bitten by a radioactive spider. The venom gets inside of him. He now has the ability to do all those things. Any amount of teaching, any, any amount of leading wouldn't have gotten him there. But once he gets it inside him, then he has the power to do all these amazing things. 
God led his people through the wilderness. He gave them manna to eat. He gave them food to eat. He sustained them. He gave them water from a rock. The scripture tells us the rock was Christ. He did all these things for them, and yet it did not result in their obedience. It did not result in them living for the glory of their God who rescued them. They rebelled against him. They had stiff necks, the scripture said, and they refused to come to him. Even the Spirit, it says, who taught them, instructed them, it did not lead them to living for the glory of God. And yet what we have here in John chapter 7 is Jesus proclaiming that He is what we need. Come to me and drink. He is better than the manna which came down from heaven. He is the true bread of life which has come down and those who feast on Him have life. He is the rock from which the water flowed. John is making us connect, really, the Spirit with Jesus. What is needed is not instruction. What is needed is not sustenance from manna or water. What is needed is coming to Jesus Christ and being filled with His Spirit so that then we might be enabled to walk in His ways. Then we might be able to live for the glory of God in repentance and faith. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what many in Israel did not have as they were wandering through the wilderness. It's what has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament stories, the the exodus out of Egypt, the wandering in the wilderness, the manna from heaven, the water out of the rock, all of this points to Jesus Christ and what we need in Him, brothers and sisters. You need Him more than you need anything else in this life. What we needed was the Holy Spirit inside of us to change us, to make us willing even, to empower us to trust in Him and to love Him. Now John says that he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit was not, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What does he mean there? He is speaking of coming to Jesus, having faith in him, drinking from him, and Jesus pours out his Spirit upon his people. This is the the fulfillment of the promises throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, which came to fruition in the greatest way in Acts chapter 2 in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, it wasn't that the Spirit wasn't active before in the lives of God's people. We, we just saw that the Spirit instructed the people in the wilderness. And yet, at Acts chapter 2 in, in Pentecost, this happens in a grand and marvelous way. It happens in abundance, and it happens not only with ethnic Israel, it happens with the nations It happens with people who are not a part of this ethnic people, Israel. It signals a new work of God and the fruition in a greater way than ever before of the Holy Spirit, which is poured out on his people. And it won't happen until it says Jesus is glorified. Now, often what we think about the glorification of Jesus is his his new glorified body in the ascension as he is at the right hand of the Father. And yet, as we've seen in John, He speaks of Jesus being lifted up, which includes several ideas. It includes his being lifted up on the cross. 
It includes his being lifted up in resurrection and it includes him being lifted up in ascension to heaven. The pouring out of the Spirit comes because Jesus was faithful in dying for the sins of his people. God was faithful in raising him up and drawing him into heaven with him. Well, considering these things, we ought to think about how, what implications this has. What, what should we do with this information? First, you should hear and heed the invitation of Jesus Christ. He is making this invitation in the hearing of my voice through me, just a man. He's making this invitation to you. Boys and girls, teenagers, children, adults, he's making this invitation to you. Jesus says, come to me and drink if you thirst. Anyone who believes in me will have life in himself springing up into eternal life. Hear and heed the invitation, friends and brothers and sisters. Come to Jesus. Drink from him. Be satisfied in who he is for you. The flip side of that is that we would forsake all other invitations. These desires that are at war within us, that are pulling us in different directions, that we would forsake those desires, that we would forsake those invitations. Now, I want to give a little nuance here, though, because the desire in itself, desire in itself are not bad. Jesus himself says a condition is thirst, having that desire. And really, we were created to have desire, but it's supposed to find its fulfillment in Christ. What has happened is a distortion of our desires. They've been turned in wrong directions. They've been, we've not kept them in moderation, and we have not kept the end as Christ. We have instead terminated our desires on the things themselves rather than seeing good gifts from God. So we should be very careful to moderate our desires, yes, to have control over our desires, yes, but ultimately that we, that our desires would be fulfilled in Christ, even as we enjoy the good gifts of God. They are meant to point ultimately to Christ. And then a second implication or application is don't let familiarity become familiar. So familiarity has a couple of different senses. One is closeness or intimacy. Another sense of familiarity is mundane. We have familiarity with God in that he has indwelled us if we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you, brothers and sisters. In that sense, it is very familiar. He is not only around us, he is inside of us, and yet all too often that can become a familiar or mundane idea. Don't let that happen. Don't let the the wonder and the awe get lost on you. Are you kidding me? The Holy Spirit of God lives in you. Well, what does that mean for how you live from day to day with the knowledge of the presence of God with you and inside you? What does that, that do for you when you face temptation to sin? 
when the, you recognize the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you? What do you do when you feel guilt over your sin because you, you know you didn't yearn to, to desire that thing or you didn't yearn to speak in that way to someone else? You didn't want to do that and yet you sinned. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. You have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Do not let familiarity, intimacy with the Spirit become a mundane and ordinary thing. It is a supernatural and glorious thing we should remain in awe of. Study Scripture together concerning the Holy Spirit. Get together with a brother or sister and read a book on the Holy Spirit. Be careful to discern what you read and yet Be filled with wonder at the teaching of the scriptures concerning the Holy Spirit. We should not forget or let this become mundane. Let's look at the response of the people in verses 40 through 52. And this is a shorter section, so just to let you know if you needed a little relief. Notice the response of the people to this glorious and gracious invitation of Jesus. There are divisions among the people. There are divisions among the crowd. This is the Christ. Hey, but what is, is, is the Christ to come from Galilee? That doesn't make any sense. The Christ is supposed to come from David and Bethlehem, the village where David came from. So there was a division among the people. There's silence here with John. Did you notice that? We might would think that John could put in parentheses, for they didn't know that he was actually born in Bethlehem. Right? They could have, he could have said that. So there's silence on why John doesn't uh, talk about Jesus' origin here. Some people take that to mean John thinks his readers will already know that because they know the rest of the gospel stories. I think, rather, he's wanting us to recognize the origin of Jesus is from above. He's from heaven. He's not even from the earth. He is from above with the Father. There's division in the crowds. There's division uh, among the leaders and the officials. The officials, some officials were sent to arrest Jesus, and yet they come back empty-handed. What are you doing? Why didn't you arrest him? And they say, no one ever spoke like this. They don't know what to do with Jesus. He looks like he might be the Christ, and yet yet he's not supposed to come from Galilee. And yet, look at his teaching. It's so amazing. And there is division even among the Pharisees, even the top-level religious authorities. There's division. Nicodemus himself, who had spent time with Jesus, we saw that in John chapter 3. He wants to give Jesus a fair hearing. We should give him a fair hearing, right? Doesn't our law say that we should listen and hear what he has to say for for himself? And the Pharisees respond with an ad hominem attack. Are you one of them too? Everybody knows prophet doesn't come from Galilee. But I want you to, in particular, notice their amazing hypocrisy. Look at what they call the crowd. It says, none of the authorities or Pharisees have believed in him. You're going to follow after these crowds. This crowd that does not know the law. This not knowing the law crowd is under a divine curse. As if to say, do you want to fall under this curse as well? 
the irony here is that the crowds, you can tell they have some knowledge of the law, actually, and they are, some of them seem to be connecting the law with Christ. Some of them seem to be on the verge of believing in Him. They are making the connections to the law with Christ. They don't know the law. They are under the divine curse. It is we Pharisees who know the law. And we have the favor of God. But we know, brothers and sisters, it is the exact reverse. It is not by knowing the law that one is removed from the curse of God. We could say it's by doing the law that you escape the curse of God, and yet none of them did the law. They claimed to know the law, yet they failed to see how all of the law and prophets pointed to Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled the law. They didn't know the law, it turns out. They didn't keep the law, and they were under the divine curse. They think they know what they're talking about, but they do not know God. I'm going to get back to that when it comes to an application, but first I want us to consider a few applications concerning the response, this response to Jesus' gracious invitation. And the first is this. In your, in your evangelism, in your speaking to others about Christ, about the gospel, don't be afraid to give an invitation. Right? As far as I know, we've never given an invitation in the traditional sense of the word, like come forward here at this church. But we should be giving invitations to people that don't know Christ. We should say to him, come to Jesus. We should, we, we should tell them the gospel, but we should also invite them, come to Jesus. You see, this longing that you're having, this desire that you think will be fulfilled in this thing or that thing, is actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And until you come to Him, you will continue to long and be unsatisfied. Come to Jesus and drink and be filled with Him. Give that invitation to those who don't know Christ. But also we should see that more than interest is required to saving faith, right? The crowds, the officials, they express a certain interest in Jesus, and yet that is not saving faith. They were unwilling to make the leap, as it were, to embrace Jesus Christ and to drink. He didn't say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and be interested in my teachings or the miracles that I perform. perform. Let him come to me and drink to receive me into himself. But third and finally, the divine curse is removed only by Jesus Christ. Not by knowing the law, not by keeping the law as, you, as if you could do so, but only by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. You remember Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. Open your ears and open your hearts and hear the word of God concerning the divine curse. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified by, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Receive that promise through faith, brothers and sisters. The divine curse is removed only by Jesus Christ. It's been a while since my family and I have been able to go to the Great Wolf Lodge. It's an indoor water park. There's one in Charlotte. And one of the coolest things to see as you're sitting there is the, I believe it's called the Lots, lots of Water Dump. The Lots of Water Dump Zone. You, you go and stand in this particular place, and every five minutes, a bucket is gradually being filled with water that holds a thousand gallons of water. And all the kids and even some adults run over to stand underneath this bucket because when it fills up, it just dumps water all over them. And they just stand there receiving that water pouring all over them. It is a, it's a fun, beautiful sight. And how much more beautiful is the idea of you standing under the favor of God because of Jesus Christ and Him pouring out His grace upon you. You haven't deserved it. You haven't earned it. But it is yours and He is pouring it out on you in Jesus Christ because of Jesus Christ. And it not only pours all over you, but the Spirit goes inside of you, brothers and sisters. This is good news. This is good news. So in light of that good news, I'm going to invite Landon up and we're going to sing a song of response. And as we do so, let's do so with the knowledge of the Spirit who is intimately connected with us, inside of us. And then as we leave after the benediction, let us walk in the newness of the life we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.